All right. Uh, hey, we've actually been in this sermon series on the miracles of Jesus. And uh, the season that we find ourselves in, around, along with churches around the world, is a season that we call Lent. Now, Lent is the season that leads up towards Good Friday, to Holy Week, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, which we believe is a historical event that really happened, that Jesus himself was someone who came and lived and died and resurrected from the grave. And so Lent is a season in which we want to clear out the things that keep us from Jesus. So that's why people found from things like social media or from meat or from sweets or things like that so that Jesus can become the center. So that's what Lent is. Lent is a season in which I'm so used to orienting my life around other things, around my career, around friendships, around these other relationships. But what does it look like for Jesus to become the center by which everything in my life is centered around Jesus? And so during this sermon series, we've actually been inviting people to look at the miracles of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the miracle where Jesus turns water into wine. We talked about how Jesus is not some cosmic killjoy, but instead, he's a God who brings the best wine. Now, some of you afterwards, you came up to me and you're like, I thought we were going to have wine in this service. Why did we have chocolate? And uh, I was like, oh, communion is for where the wine is, you see. Um, Anyhow, uh, but that's next week. But anyhow, uh, it's... With this whole idea, we're we're talking about what does it look like in the life of Jesus? What are these miracles, and why does he do what he does? And so we're actually looking at this uh, passage today where there's this extraordinary miracle where Jesus intervenes in someone's life. Now, let's read together. Look at what happens in John chapter 5. Here's what it says. It says, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now, to give you a little context of what's happening in this moment, a Jewish festival, it means that people have made pilgrimages from all all over Judea to come to Jerusalem. So it's crowded. People are there. And notice all these details that are given. There's a Sheep Gate, a pool, five Uh, covered colonnades, uh, Bethesda. All of these details are given, again, because this is what we believe in these gospel accounts, are historical accounts. These are the receipts that are kind of like, hey, if you don't believe that this story is real, go check out this place and hear about the stories and check with these people who witnessed these accounts because this is a story of Jesus doing this miracle. Now, look at what it says. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, other manuscripts actually reveal that it was in this area that people believed that the water of this pool was stirred by an angel. And some people had actually been healed by going into this pool. So you could imagine when rumors start to spread that if you get to this pool, when the, when the water starts to stir, then you're going to be healed. And so it, it further explains why are there so many disabled people all congregated in this area. Uh, And now look at what happens. It says, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Could you imagine? Like that means that this person had actually been an invalid for longer than Jesus had been alive in in the earth during that time. I'm 43 years old. Uh, I know some of you are like, I thought you were younger. But uh, I'm not. But like, like, so for most of my lifetime, this guy's been an invalid. Could you imagine the the... Like, he's probably an older person. He's been in this crowd for a long time. He's been disabled. He knows the experience of being absolutely helpless for 38 years. And look what it says. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him this. Do you want to get well? 
Now, I want to pause there because in some ways, like, it's like, Jesus, read the room. Come on. There's a bunch of disabled people. They're all trying to get into the pool. This guy's been an invalid for 38 years. Like, this is an incredibly patronizing question to be asking here. What in the world are you doing and why are you saying this? Now, notice he's learned about his story and he asks him this question. And it's essentially, it's a yes or no question. Do you want to get well? Well, yeah, the easy question, the easy response is like, yes, I do want to get well, Jesus. Or no, I don't want to get well. But notice actually how this man responds. Check this out. He says, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Could you imagine? Like, in many ways, he's been reflecting on this question for years. Do you want to get well? And again, it's a simple yes or no question. But he's been down this road before. 38 years he's wrestled with this question. Do I want to get well? And every single time he's, he's conjured up enough hope to somehow get well, it gets dashed again because someone else goes in ahead of me or someone else is there to help someone else, anyone except him. Jesus asked him this very simple question, yes or no, do you want to get well? And he basically has this response where he's basically like, well, honestly, Jesus, like, I want to get well, but seriously, let me give you all the conditions and reasons why even if that's what I want, I am resigned to my fate, which is essentially I am never going to get well. I mean, do you see this moment? He's basically come to a place where he's lost a lot of hope. He's in the midst of basically this moment where he's like, I'm resigned to being an invalid for 38 more years. Essentially, that's what he's saying to Jesus. There was this uh, season in which uh, at the former church that I was at, we were in this kind of uh, environment where we're learning about conflict resolution. And I, myself, was navigating through different conflicts in our church community. And so as a result, I was meeting with this uh, person, this coach, who was uh, taking us through this conflict resolution uh, paradigm. And in this paradigm, right, like at the top of this sheet had the way that we share our feelings and then we share preferences and then we negotiate the conflict. And then hopefully relationships get better and they increase and they accelerate into a better place, right? Like that's the goal for any kind of conflict resolution roadmap. And then at the bottom of this page was at the bottom, it, it basically said um, the relationship is unsalvageable. Right? So it's basically like at the top was basically like, this is what you want to get to so that the relationship could survive and move forward. And at the bottom was basically like the pit of despair. Don't go there. Otherwise, it's the moment when relationships have become basically forever damaged and it won't, it won't work to move forward anymore. Now, in between that like pit of despair, I call it the pit of despair. I couldn't find it online. But anyhow, and this other paradigm that had kind of what we have to work through, there was this one word that was in between this pit as well as the flourishing that we needed to get to. And it was actually this French word, ennui. Now, I remember like reading that word. I'm like, what is ennui? And uh, the person who was facilitating this moment, he's like, oh, it's a French word. And I was like, you're from Ohio. What's, <laughs> what's going on here? And he's like, yeah, it's this French word called ennui. And, and ennui actually comes from a Latin word that means annoyance. And ennui is actually this word that means annoyance or boredom 
or resignation. And what he went on to explain is ennui is this moment in a relationship when you're in a conflict where it's, it's like you can't even get mad anymore. Nothing even enrages you. You've just come to this place of surrendered resignation. You don't even care anymore. You're just done. And so he was explaining it's this moment of boredom, of annoyance, of resignation. Like, I, I just don't even care anymore. And he said, whenever a relationship gets into that moment, it's very close to becoming unsalvageable. Because it's this moment where I become so resigned to my fate that it's just done and finished. You know, as I was reflecting on this man, this invalid, who's been in this predicament for 38 years. Oh, you got to love New York here. Yeah. Lord, we do pray for wherever that siren is going. Um, Yeah. I forgot what I was saying. But, um, oh, this invalid had been an invalid for 38 years, and I think about his predicament, kind of the condition of his heart, and essentially he's in this moment of ennui, this moment where he's got nothing left to hope for. Jesus asks him this question. It's a simple yes or no question. He can't even say, yes, I want to get well. Instead, he's resigned to simply saying, listen, it is out of my control. There is nothing that's going to change. In fact, as I was thinking about phrases, when people get into this situation of ennui, this moment when I feel like I've got no hope, I've reached the end of my capacity, I thought of phrases like this, things will never change. My situation is impossible. Have you ever been there before? Have you ever been to a situation or been to a place in your life where you're like, things will never change? Maybe it's relationally. And you realize you keep heading into roadblock after roadblock and you just realize things will never change. Maybe you've been going through a season of depression. Just feel like yourself getting to the same cycles over and over again. And you're like, things will never change. This is impossible. Maybe it's an addiction that you keep getting hooked on and you start thinking to yourself, things will never change. Maybe you're a Mets fan. A lot of promise this year, but there's this ennui that settles in. This is impossible. Things will never change, Michael. I'm just kidding. This happens to us all the time, right? These moments when we feel like things are absolutely impossible. I don't know if I can put one foot in front of the other, and maybe you showed up today, and maybe this was even just kind of a last gasp kind of action to just show up today. And still, that, that message, that kind of, that running kind of narrative in your own mind is things will never change. This is an impossible situation. And you find yourself time and time again in this moment. And I imagine this is what this man felt, this ennui, this resignation, so close to the pit of despair. But Jesus enters the scene. Look at how stunning this moment when Jesus interacts with the man. Look at what it says. Uh, It says, sir, the invalid replied, I'm in the second paragraph. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, it's almost like Jesus cuts through the ennui, the resignation, the annoyance, the boredom, all the excuses, all the impossibility of the situation. Jesus cuts through it. And look what he does. He says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. 
It's like the ultimate boss move. Here he is. And look, at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. When this man, this invalid, has no reserves to believe for himself, Jesus cuts through all of that and is able to say with such authority and power and deliverance, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And he does, just with a word. And here's what this miracle actually reveals to us. Gotta love New York as well. You just gotta love the open windows, everything. Yeah! But look, Look at what it reveals to us. It's Jesus takes impossible situations and he makes them possible. He takes these moments of ennui, of resignation, of feeling like things will never change. I'm relegated to this fate forever. And he intervenes with just a word. I I imagine Jesus, I, I don't... If I were Jesus, I would point. I don't know if that's what he did, but like just this authority where he's coming with such power. He's like, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Break through all of the feelings, the 38 years of this self-defeating belief that this man has about himself and his situation. And he speaks into it with such power. And he says, this impossible situation, I'm gonna make possible right now. What? A wonder, what a power. You know, as I was wrestling, um, you know, this past season, as we entered the new year, you know, our church has been through this reorganization where two of our daughter congregations are coming back under and we're going to one church into three different locations. And like, uh, it's been really overwhelming. And as the new year was coming around, I myself was starting to feel incredibly overwhelmed. And then in addition to that, there were some circumstances for people that people were going through, whether it was mental health challenges or relational issues or um, deaths in the family. There was, it, it felt like just this tidal wave of these moments. And there was this moment in January where I'm just kind of like, gosh, I, I don't, I think I'm in over my head and I'm starting to lose hope. You know, have you ever been in these situations where you're just kind of teetering and you're just kind of like, oh man, I don't, I don't know if we're going to make it here. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Getting inching closer and closer to ennui. This past week, I was with a group of pastors and a mentor of mine, and one of the things he encouraged was just to, to write down, whenever we get into these moments of despair, to just write down instances in one's own life when you felt that, that same feeling of despair and impossibility in your life and moments where God delivered you. So as I was reflecting this past week, I started writing down these different moments in my life, you know. And I wrote down how, like, you know, when I was a kid, um, I don't remember how old I was, but we were, we were driving in a car, and I fell out of the car on this very busy highway. Don't worry, I didn't die. I'm, uh, <laughs> but I realized, I wrote that, I'm like, oh, man, I'm, I, I survived. Wow, this busy street. It's amazing. And I, I, I write, wrote down about how, like, in high school, um, I was one of the few Asian-American kids in our high school, and, like, so just a torrent of racism, you know, in high school. And I realized I'm, like, graduated high school. 
from moments when I thought I wouldn't graduate high school. Moved away, went to college. It was like, I graduated from college. Some of you are like, Drew, your bar is very low, I realize, when you're just these impossible situations. <laughs> moved to New York. When I moved to New York, moved here, I raised support to move here. I lived off of, I raised $7,500. That's the, the most I could raise, and I lived here for a year on that. I wouldn't recommend it, but I made it, you know, like I, an impossible situation. I just realized, like, looking back over my life, like, there's been evidence of God just taking impossible situations, or at least from my own vantage point, feeling like impossible situations. And he's always been in the business of making impossible situations possible. Some of you are in predicaments today where some impossible situations, there's some turmoil that's happening within your families. You feel like this feels absolutely impossible. Some work situations, you feel so overwhelmed. Maybe you're in a season of unemployment. Or maybe it is your own mental health challenges. You feel like it's impossible. If I told you Jesus is in the business of actually taking those very impossible situations and making things possible. Now, this isn't the end of the story, though. Check out what happens. That gives us even more insight into what happens. It says, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which he took, this took place was a Sabbath, which was a 24-hour period, and it was, Sabbath was revered within Jewish custom and belief. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. I mean, it's like, seriously, guys? He was an invalid for 38 years. Just chill out, okay? Like, seriously, you're getting mad at him for picking up his mat. Um, But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? It's like this man doesn't even know who Jesus is. And they're getting infuriated because he's, he's carrying his mat um, on the Sabbath. Um, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd and was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, okay, so you get this. Jesus basically says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. This man gets up, picks up his his mat, and he walks. And it says, Jesus slipped away. He has no idea. Jewish leaders confront this guy. He's like, who did this? Why are you picking up your mat? He's like, "Uh, listen, uh, he just told me to do this. And look, I'm walking. You know, 38, 38 years, guys. Right? And they're like, who is this man? Jesus finds him again. He sees that he's well. And I, I got I to gotta tell you, like, when I first saw what Jesus says to him, I was like, Jesus, that sounds cold-blooded. You know, like, he basically, Jesus, like, immediately he sees him. And I'd imagine, like, Jesus being like, come here, come here. I, listen, I know you've suffered a lot. I've made you well. I am here for you. But, but he doesn't do that. Look what he does. He goes, he, he sees his well. He says, listen, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. 
peace. You know, and then he's gone. It's like, Jesus, seriously? Really? Stop sitting? Now, there's something really kind of puzzling about this moment. The question is, why does he say stop sinning? Is it because, is it because somehow this man's sin was connected to him being an invalid? That, that's what one would think. That's why he would say stop sinning. But later on in John chapter 9, there's a miracle where his disciples actually ask him, like, is sin connected to the physical infirmities that we had have? And Jesus responds by essentially saying, he, he, he says, listen, it's not that easy to explain, but essentially, no, it's not that, it's not that one-to-one. If you sin, then you're going to have this physical infirmity. So it, it's not... It's not like Jesus is saying to the man, stop sitting or else you're going to be worse than you were when you were an invalid for 38 years. No. Then why does he say stop sinning? Well, the word for sin in the Greek is this word harmatia. Now, sin, it literally means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. In other words, there's, an, there's a direction, there's an aim. And if I miss the mark, then I've started to sin. Now, the question is, what does it mean, though, to miss the mark? What kind of mark are we talking about? Uh, In Romans chapter 14, in the letter to Rome, Paul actually writes this. Romans chapter 14, verse 23. Look at what it says. He says, whatever is not of faith is sin. Now, this passage actually comes in the context where Paul is teaching about these gray area issues in life. And he's basically saying that this is what sin is. Sin is whenever I don't live and believe in a manner in which the object of my faith is God, whenever I start believing in something different than God, whenever I start having faith in anyone or anything different than God, whenever I start having faith in my career, whenever I start having faith in my relationships, whenever I start having faith in anything but God, I've missed the mark. That's when I start to sin. See, whatever is not a faith is sin. Whenever I don't have faith in who God is, that's when I start making decisions where it teeters into sin, where I start missing the mark. Why? Because everything else becomes God except God himself. So essentially, this is what Jesus is saying to the man when he says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. He's essentially saying, listen, stop sinning and start believing. Start believing. Start having faith. Start living your life in a manner that you believe in a God who puts impossible situations into the realm of possibility. Stop sitting. Start believing. Instead of missing the mark with all the ways in which you put faith in these other people or into your own kind of projects or your own ambition, will you put your faith in God? Because whatever is not of faith is sin. And so when Jesus says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you, what he's saying is, will you start entrusting your life into God where it rightfully should be? Now, here's the thing. Most of us, when it comes down to even this statement, some of you as cynical, sophisticated, well-educated New Yorkers, went to the best schools, work at the best financial firms, have these fancy jobs. I mean, most of us, it's kind of like, well, listen, I don't really need to put my faith in God because I got myself, got my degrees, got my intellect, got my smarts. 
Or maybe some of you are in a situation where you're like, listen, I don't need to believe in God because, honestly, God has disappointed me time and time again. And I've been in situations where I gave myself permission to hope, and all it led to was more heartache. Have you been there before? There are all sorts of reasons why, even as I say these words, stop sinning, start believing, that some of us find ourselves, we're like, no, 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 things will never change. Drew, I can't take myself there again. What gives me reason to believe that this is any different? You know what comes immediately after Jesus heals this man and he tells him, stop sinning so that something worse doesn't happen to you? Look at what happens in John chapter 5 immediately after this miracle. Check this out. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Now look at the response of the Jewish leaders. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What's happening here? See, Jesus knows that when he heals the man, it actually is going to lead to his death. You see, and this has always been the heart of God, the God that we love and the God that we serve. That whatever cynicism, whatever feelings of despair, whatever doubts we might have about who God is, this is what the Christian good news has always been about. That the God that we believe, the God that he's asking us to start believing and to trust and to entrust our lives to, is a God who would actually heal and give life to this invalid. And the way that he would do that is by giving up his own life away, by dying on a cross, taking our sin and shame so that we might have life. Why would God do this? Why? Because this is who God is. He's a God who loves us. He's a God who is for us. He's a God that we can't hear it enough. When any time when I start believing in myself, when I start believing in my career, when I start believing in my LinkedIn profile, when I start believing in all these other things, he centers us again and he reminds us, listen, the kind of God that he's asking us to believe and to entrust our lives to, to have faith in, has always been this kind of God a God of infinite love and kindness and mercy for you, for me. Look at what it says in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 in the message version. It says, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why. So that no one need to be destroyed or mired in ennui. Sorry, I'm just adding some words here. Mired in this hopelessness in this feeling that things will never change, being weighted down with impossible situations that feels like nothing will ever change? No. By believing in him, anyone, you, me, can have a lasting and whole life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger telling the world how bad it was he came to help to put the world right again, to show me, to show you. 
He has always been for you. Always loving you, wanting to demonstrate to you that he hasn't given up on you. That whatever impossible situation you might find yourself in today, today can actually be a new day. The question is, will you believe? Will you have faith? Will you trust? Will you entrust yourself to the God who would give his life for yours?